Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. This is Charlie Webb and you're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. Welcome back medical device manufacturers and medical device packaging professionals and welcome back devoted fans, both of you, for showing back up for this program. Well, today's interesting. Some of you may know Lisa Wasberg. She's a producer of this podcast, but the uh, sort of inside scoop is she's Lisa Wasberg hyphen web. Yes, Lisa is my wife. How do you think a guy like me got a podcast? You got to marry the producer people. Come on. She's going to be in here. We're going to talk about medical device packaging from the optic of a provider of medical device packaging machinery and medical device testing equipment. Now, Historically, I've sort of avoided having this conversation on this podcast. I don't like it when these sort of gratuitous promotion podcasts where it's so tied in with a company that supports it. I don't want to do that. Vanderstall, sure, yep, we're the sponsor of this podcast. But if you go back to all of our episodes, you'll see that I avoid that conversation of trying to fold in little commercials. However, and we're not going to do that today either, but we are going to talk about our workflow as it relates to medical device packaging failures and issues that we see to help our medical device packaging engineers avoid going down some of these gravel roads needlessly from ill-prepared IQs on their validation. We've identified so many things over the years regarding just tragic preventative maintenance programs and so on. So we're going to have that discussion with Lisa. She is the general manager of Vanderstall Scientific, and she's right in the front line. She sees the good, the bad, the ugly, and I want to get her sort of perspective on this interplay between providers of machinery to medical device manufacturers and the medical device packaging device makers themselves. So we're going to have that discussion. I didn't want to say quickly, some of you may know that we had planned to be on a road trip But what happened was the pandemic happened. So it changed our whole trajectory, at least for now. We're hoping to jump back in on the spring. But in case you don't know anything about it, um, I urge you to pop over to uh, sterilepackagingroadtrip.com. There's a little summary of what we were up to. But Lisa and I and our 13-year-old son were going to uh, hop in our camper van conversion. It's a really cool four-wheel drive camper van. And we were going to sort of weave in trail running. We're both trail runners and hikers and visits to national parks. And then we're also going to weave in, of course, the visits to the hospital and kind of get uh, the old two birds with one stone sort of thing. But unfortunately, the hospitals are certainly not welcoming anyone in, even though it's not a sales pitch per se. We're in there to in-service SPD departments on how to use our equipment, other ways to test uh, sterile packs to make sure there's not been a breach in the sterile barrier system. So we had a lot of uh, valuable educational stuff going into this trip. But as you can imagine, you know, we can't can't have people just dropping in the door at hospitals right now. Not a good time. We totally get that. 
So as I said, we're going to try to pick it up again in spring. Hopefully uh, things will calm down a little bit by then and we'll be welcomed back into the hospital. But again, we're going to be on that trip. We'll be doing, we'll be podcasting from the road. We're going to hit about seven states. I'll be running all of my standard programs, tech support and all the other things that I do for Vanderstahl Scientific will be happening from the road. It'll be an interesting vacation. We're looking forward to that. And uh, Lisa and I are are very excited about the trip ahead. So anyway, I'd like to get Lisa on the phone. As I say, she has really seen the good, the bad, the ugly when it comes to all the things that sort of happen at that street level with medical device manufacturing, packaging validation. So she can provide us some insight. She's a little microphone shy, but I think once we get her talking, we'll get some good information from her. So I'd like to welcome uh, Lisa. Hello, Lisa. Well, it's about time that you had me on your podcast. Thank you very much for having me. True. Well, you know, I pass you all the time at home and at work, so it was kind of awkward not putting you on the show. So thank hey, you. You're welcome. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the calls that come into Vanderstahl Scientific and some of the issues that we have. I know you have your own set of pet peeves. Let's start here. Let's talk about preventative maintenance. I know that you get the calls that come into the part center and our service center. Also, when you hear from the service center, when you speak with Cord Burnham, our service center lab manager, he'll tell you that we've had an, an issue and they, the customer sent the machine back upside down, nothing in the jaws, looks like they haven't replaced consumable parts for a year. And their comment is that the machine is not working well. Oh, it just, I just want to die. I look at those machines like they're my baby. And so when people don't take care of them, and then they send them back haphazardly in the box with nothing in the jaw. And they come in and they're broken. I'm like, oh, gosh, I want to call and just like hit their hand and tell them, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> Lisa is the, the mother of all packaging, <laughs> mother for all packaging machines. She's the caregiver. I mean, seriously, I do. I look at them like they're still partly mine. And so I worry about them more probably than our customers do. But yeah, so that is a big pet peeve. So we, we try to educate people because a lot of times they don't understand. I mean, they don't understand that it's a 70-pound metal, mostly metal machine that's very heavy. And if it gets dropped and it's not secure in that box, I mean, even though they are packaging engineers, I think maybe it's the shipping department that is packaging the equipment to go back. So they don't understand how sensitive the equipment is. So yeah, that that's a bummer. But you know what? We usually always can fix it unless it's really, really bad, but it's too bad that they don't take the time to read the service return authorization form that tells them how to pack it properly. When you spend the time going through validation, it's funny. I'll speak to a quality engineer. They just commissioned in some of our equipment. So they're looking at things. I mean, I, I literally, I had a customer who's asked me what the uh, metallurgy makeup was of the base plate as they were developing their validation on the IQ side. So you can go through this granular investigation to make sure that your validation is going to go good. And then when you turn it over to less interested parties down the road, the quality plan sort of falls apart. And all due respect, these are tiered positions. And so if you were working in the warehouse and your job is to ship things every day, you may have no idea what 11607, no, they have no clue what this is. They have no idea what the process of medical device packaging validation is. And so in fairness to them, they don't understand. They ship other things all day long. So they put that in a box. I mean, we've seen some crazy things where they've sent it back in for, I mean, you know, sometimes we have customers that insist that we come on site, which we do. We do on-site calibration and service because they're so concerned about how that equipment could be affected, how there could be a, 
an error could take place in their process because they don't know exactly how that machine has been handled by any of the common carriers. So it's surprising to us when the quality group is so far removed from that process. And this is true with preventative maintenance. I mean, we, I know Lisa, you've had customers who didn't even know that the consumable parts were replacement items, right? Oh, no. And that's why now moving forward, I try to educate them a little bit before they purchase the machine and make sure that they understand that there are parts that need to be changed. And further, you know, it'd be a good idea for them to commission that machine in, even though it's calibrated before it leaves, but commission it in to be sure that the thermal environment hasn't changed based on shipping. So I try to encourage our customers to buy our test lead, which is calibrated and follow our SOP to make sure that that machine is performing as expected when they receive it, even though it's a brand new machine. And my criticism all along has been that this tiered process we're talking about here, when you you have degreed engineers that are doing the validation, so high level evaluation of the equipment. I mean, these are the ones that have developed the purchase specification for the device. They understand how the equipment has to work in concert with regulatory requirements like 11607. But when it falls down to the next tier, which is maintenance, maintenance also sometimes doesn't understand that the PM that's required is also a regulatory requirement. It's not just an internal requirement that they take care of the equipment, but the FDA ISO requires that that equipment, if it's critical in nature, have a PM plan and we're, again, I think shocked when we find out that there wasn't a PM plan and that they'll send a machine in for us for service and nothing has ever been done to it, burnt parts of heating elements. And you've got to wonder on a 1345 company that sends in packaging machinery in this sort of status, you wonder how good that validation really could be when there's not a watchdog all the way through the process. And the funny thing is, is that those same customers will be the ones that won't want any service performed on that equipment. And the calibration is only as good as the parts that are on the machine. So I always try to encourage our customers, hey, you know what? All you're paying for is the parts. It doesn't cost very much. Let us do the service as well as the calibration because four months down the road, you're going to come back and say, would you do? Our machine isn't performing like we like we would expect. And it's because you didn't want to perform service on that equipment when we calibrated it. So I try to encourage them to please, when we calibrate it, let us service it because we do a 35 point inspection. We know how to adjust the parts. We know how to put the parts on properly. And usually for those customers that always do the full service and the calibration, we don't hear from them for the year. The machine's perfect. For a year. Also keep in mind, you know, some of this equipment, we got in a piece of equipment that I calibrated 26 years ago. Yes. So the equipment, if maintained, and again, I don't want to make this an infomercial on our equipment, medical packaging machine or any critical machinery period with a good PM, you have to factor in first the cost of ownership. Our son is big into supercars and he was just telling me the other day to own a Bugatti, it costs you around a quarter of a million dollars a year in preventative maintenance. So you fold those sort of costs in that have to be part of that purchase specification. What's the cost of ownership? Obviously, if you have a car, you're changing the oil, you're rotating your tires. All of these things are part of that cost of ownership piece. And trying to be too frugal 
at the point of delivery, I mean, that's one of the challenges when you're in a medical device packaging machine business as we are. You're the last stop on that budget. So all of the money was taken care of on regulatory consultants for your 510K, all the greatest injection molding equipment, your new clean room that you love to show everybody off when they come to your company. And then when it comes to packaging equipment, we're just putting it in a bag. It loses its importance. And unfortunately, without that device being delivered sterile, your whole device, efficacious or not, is valueless. And so that's the tale that we constantly want to tell our customers. I think also when you're talking about purchase specifications, and Lisa can probably speak to this, is a lot of times they're spec in a machine. Now we sell some machines that are for laboratory. We really, we're not in the general packaging business. We're a medical device packaging machine provider, but we do have machines that are not validatable. And a lot of times because the cost is less, there's no microprocessor involved. Lisa, you've had people purchase those machines and try to validate them, obviously with bad results. Yes. Very, very bad results. They're like, oh, how can I adjust this or make sure that the the temperature is where it's supposed to be. And I'm like, you can't, you've got the wrong equipment for what you're trying to do. So I try to head that off at the pass and make sure that they understand that what they're buying is not for a medical device. I mean, even for testing. So we sell testing equipment and um, this is, I, I've told a story before in this podcast, but we had a customer that learned about the ASTM F88, the M15 iteration of that. And so his feeling was that it was a one pound peel test on a one inch specimen, which is basically true, but it's how you approach that. It has to be a mechanized study. It has to be pulled at a specific rate. You have to do data capture. A lot of things have to come in. It's not just pull something apart and see what sort of strength you get. It's far more complicated. Most of us know that, right? Well, unfortunately, this guy figured he'd go to um, Dick's Sporting Goods, get a uh, alligator clip hook it up to a one pound weight. And if the weight hit the floor, then he didn't pass the the seal. So this is the same thing we sell packaging machine testing and trying to make people understand that this is material science. This is a, a sterile packaging here. We're not packing in potato chips. In fact, packing potato chips would take more requirements to make sure that the product arrives uh, fresh. So I think it's important that purchase specifications are understood against the regulatory requirement as well as the workflow and other factors. And so that's one of the challenges that we see is people either underbuying or buying the equipment and really not understanding the importance or the value of taking care of that equipment, right? Right. And I would say to this too about testing is that if you are just starting to package a medical device, you've got to do testing. You have got to incorporate testing into your packaging validation program Because I always liken the testing to not getting the car insurance, car rental insurance on a car rental and getting into an accident. And for $15 more a day, you could have saved yourself the whole headache of having to go through and pay for everything that comes along with getting into an accident. Similarly, it's the same with testing medical packages because you can bracket where you're going to do your testing. You can do it at the beginning of the day. You could do it at the end of the day. You can do it at the beginning of the lot, end of the lot. So you know exactly when your process started to creep. And I just think that it's the most valuable thing that you can do for yourself. It's like getting the insurance on your packaging program. Testing is so important. Yeah, I mean, we've seen so many people have come to us. We're, we've been sort of the 483 rescue team. We've had customers that came in with other equipment and 
or even our equipment where they're saying that, you know, they're in the middle of an audit. They're sitting across the desk from an auditor and they're waiting. And I'm an internal certified internal ISO auditor myself. I understand their pain, but when they're asking about a potential failure in the field and they're trying desperately rifling through papers, trying to figure out exactly where that error motor mode took place, it's difficult unless you have some sort of mechanized system, some sort of data logging that says that Monday morning we tested, we tested again Monday afternoon, we tested at the end of the day on Monday. You can go back and show conforming events on these historicals. And so it's a, an incredible audit piece, but obviously far more than just an audit piece. It is, as Lisa said, an insurance that you have made sure that you're not going to let product get out into the field with a potentially compromised sterile barrier system. There's a way for you to bracket those events and be able to go through and see where they may have happened if there was one that slipped out. Without that kind of testing, I'm really lost to how you could really call this program. I mean, I go way back. I remember 20 years ago, it was real common, even just as recent as five to 10 years ago, where you would send it to an independent third-party lab and they would test it for, and you do this once a month. Well, a month is a long time. And if you have any kind of throughput, you have thousands of pieces of devices out in the sterile field through distribution. And how do you account for that when you get bad news back from that independent lab? We do have uh, a program in our laboratory. It's called a, a spot program, different from the podcast, but it's a um, way for customers to send us their pouches, say once a month. So we can have an accredited ISO 17025 accredited laboratory can take a second look on the packaging, but never at all would I ever tell a customer, just use our lab. You don't need to have your own equipment. You need your own equipment. And then you need to do some round robin studies, some interlaboratory studies to make sure that you are getting the results that you expect and that your testing program is sound and that you're doing testing regularly. And that's the beauty of our PTT as well, is that it date and timestamps every event because, you know, with the FDA, if it's not recorded, did it happen? So the beauty of that PTT is that it records all of the events and you can archive it and purge it later. And I don't know how people get away with not doing that. Got to test for sure. One of the things that, you know, we're also seeing more people folding in is, is mixed modalities of testing and, and inspection. As we moved into the 2019 iteration of 11607, we're talking about seal strength, seal integrity. Visual inspection is something that has kind of been kind of underplayed, I think. We offer a visual inspection. In fact, uh, one of the devices that we have, the view system, is something that uh, I developed in our laboratory that provides side lighting so you can get some sort of sense of, of process creep. It gives you sort of a hint that you may be running into trouble. So whatever mode of testing you choose, whether it's peel testing, visual inspection, dye penetration, burst testing, all of them have their merits. I will say the sort of workhorse standard has been peel testing. The destructive testing gives a lot more data, in my opinion, if we're grabbing data dynamically and we're interpreting those waveforms. It gives us a a great way to be able to understand what's happening at that seal platen to make sure that there's not a failure mode that's creeping around the corner. Visual inspection is a good way for lay people to be able to take a peek and just say, hey, this looks odd to me. Let's bring it to the quality manager and see what the uh, implications could be of this sort of wrinkled seal. So whatever method you use, whatever you got, I know budgets are tight. We're in that industry where it's hard to justify expensive equipment. But when it comes to testing equipment, really, if we're in this business, we have to have those tools. I fight this battle all the time. In fact, 
Lisa is our general manager. She sort of holds the purse strings to our budget and seems like every time we turn around, we're getting another data logger. I'm like, oh my gosh, didn't we just get one of those? How many more do we need? Gotta have the good stuff. You know, we want the latest, greatest, and we want a lot of them because we don't want to run into that challenge. And so even though it's hard to make those decisions sometimes to pick up that equipment that's going to keep us out of trouble, it's really important that we do so. We literally have triples of everything. Yeah. Which brings us to another point. Here's another problem that we've seen recently. Well, it's, it's always been a problem. Seems to be clustering right now. Who of us would have predicted this whole pandemic? I mean, that hit everybody out of left field. We didn't see it coming. We couldn't imagine shortages. So we've been scrambling to make sure that we keep inventory of machinery, both testing and packaging machinery. And we're running into a few challenges right now. And so we're making some big purchases to make sure that we have reserves so our customers don't wait and so people can get surgeries. It's important. Very important. And even though it's hard to carry that much inventory, it's important for our customers to never be down. And so we, you know, shoulder that cost and uh, move on. And for medical device manufacturers, if you have one machine and that's the pinch point to everything that happens in your clean room, your organization. We've seen this a couple of times. I know this all must have sounded a little bit like a sales pitch. I hope not. But it's so important that you have duplicates. I require it as the quality manager in our laboratory. There's no way that I could allow us not having backup of every bit of equipment because as part of our mission statement, we have to deliver on time quality products. We can't keep products or services away from customers that need them. Again, you know, we're, we're in the medical device business. A lot of these devices, I mean, we're in the arterial disease business, stents and so forth that have to be delivered in a timely manner. Patients can't wait. So a second machine, I'm always surprised that we don't have a backup. What I do is I stagger my calibrations in the lab. So I always have a ready to go calibrated instrument. If one of those devices goes down, it's happened to us a lot lately for whatever reason. So I I am thankful for that, that you did have those backups. Got to have backups. There there has to be a contingency. And if we're not building contingencies and we're, I mean, even the term worst case scenarios have entered into validation lexicon for a reason. We have to look at what else can go wrong. And I think now with this pandemic, we're all looking at worst case scenarios a lot differently. In fact, we're having to go into a different place when we're looking into worst case scenarios. We have to imagine the bizarre when we're looking at worst case scenarios. But certainly the ones that you can anticipate that are going to happen, there's no excuse not to do that anymore. So having a duplicate of the machinery that you sell, that you use, not just ours. I mean, if you have a that pinch point device, if it's an injection molding device and there's only one It's difficult to go up to management and ask for funding for that second machine. But when the big door in the back of your building no longer rolls up and the brown truck doesn't come and get your devices, then you have a problem. Right. So we see that a lot. Yeah. I mean, we, I know Lisa's always, Lisa's a salesperson. There's no question about it. She's talks me into everything. (laughs) And vice versa. Yeah. (laughs) She's trying to get through to a lot of her customers that don't have that have that single machine and the machine that wasn't cared for. It's There seems to be some universal law here that the people who take the least good care of their equipment are the ones that are least likely to have a backup machine. Would you That's agree with sure. that? I, I totally agree with that. And the, the one thing that I am very, very proud of is that we turn equipment around so quickly in our laboratory and never, ever 
Not one time would we ever charge for getting something done faster. We do the very best we can because I understand that that is the last point before our customers can ship something out the door to make money. I know how important it is. So it's not uncommon for us to turn a machine around in a single day. We receive it in the morning, we ship it out in the afternoon. We do that often for a lot of customers, but at the same time, you still are talking about, even if you're shipping it next day, that's still three days down with nothing going out the door because that's your only piece of equipment for packaging your device. So I, I encourage our customers to please get a second machine, at least so that you can continue with production and your production is not stopped because you can't ship anything out the door. Yeah. I mean, and another thing we get asked for a lot of times is for loaners. And the problem with a loaner is that if we sent you another machine, if we had this, you know, theoretical used machine bouncing around our laboratory, how are you going to validate it? That, that's always a surprising question to me. I'm like, well, wait a minute. It would take you a month to validate this serial number. How could that be helpful to you? Yeah. I mean, I think some of our customers, packaging engineers have a different belief. And I've been into several sort of sometimes friendly, sometimes not so friendly discussions about why I don't believe it's a good idea. But obviously, you know, it's the customer's decision. But I would never bring in, in my lab, I could not bring in a used piece of equipment that's been bouncing around because you you have to qualify that equipment uniquely. It's part of your IQ. So if you're saying that you're going to say, well, the machine is the same, therefore I can use all of the validation work that I did before. I mean, depending on your class device, and maybe a few other mulligans, I would say maybe that makes sense. But overall, that is not a road that I would want to go down. Even though these machines are effectively, I'm an identical twin. But if you knew me well, and you knew my twin well, you would say we're not identical at all, but we look the same. So even machines that are identical in terms of manufacturing are going to have maybe some slight variance in the metallurgy that may hold heat differently. The microprocessor from a different iteration or a slight floating decimal software issue, whatever that might be, it's very difficult for us to just say wholeheartedly that that equipment is the same as the equipment that I have sent out for service and that I can use this equipment because it is equivalent. And equivalency is a funny thing. And when you're talking about a validation process, I would not use that equivalency statement when I'm trying to get another machine there. The best thing to do is to validate another machine whether ours or someone else's, and then spend a little bit of time having that on standby so you can uh, pull it out when you need to. We have a lot of our customers that rotate calibration dates as we do. So there's one goes out, the other one goes into service. In fact, Lisa and I do this with our cars. I have my truck, she has the family car, and um, we'll put miles on the car for a couple of weeks, and then we'll put miles on the truck for a couple of weeks. And our belief is they'll both last longer. There's probably some truth to that. I agree. But yeah, so a second machine is really helpful. Plus, you can increase your workflow if you need it. And you've already got the equipment validated and it's ready to go. So all around, it's just a good idea. Yep, good point. So as your device, and particularly from startup companies, I and mean, we see this all the time where they um, start with very low production, they finally get through all of their clinical trials or their initial pre-market stuff, and it's ready to go. It catches, and then now they're in a panic. They need another machine validated. So this is a, a great time. I mean, my son has chickens, and they have a policy over at Farm Supply 
where you have to buy more than one. They won't even let you buy a chicken. You have to have pears. I wish pears. we had that policy here because I know, right? you should have them in pairs there. If one goes down, you have a spare. And if one goes out for calibration, you have a spare. Yep. So it's really a good way to go. And it takes the heat off of me because I always get phone calls. Every single customer, just about, it's an emergency if they only have one machine. It's like, I need this back right away. And and, and I understand that. And we do do our very best to serve as best as we can. But sometimes there is a bottleneck in our laboratory that just prevents us from being able to turn it as fast as they need it. So it's like if everybody could just buy an extra one, that'd be great. Spoken from a salesperson's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> I never want to let anybody down. So I aim to please and I, I hate to tell them, no, I can't ship that, you know, in one day. It's going to take me a couple of days. So I just want everybody to be happy. Yep. Well, if you, those of you that have worked with Lisa, you know, she really does everything she possibly can to get everybody happy and all their, keep their production line up, but we can only do so much. So I guess those would be the sort of takeaways. Keep an eye on your preventative maintenance for sure, no matter whose equipment you have. Uh, And this goes along any critical piece of equipment, whether it's an air handling system for your clean room, a flow hood, anything. There should be a a good solid, I mean, it's, it's required as part of validation is to have a working system and not just have a PM plan. You also have to prove that it's been executed. The reason a lot of our customers send us their machines every year is they want us to do the accredited calibration lab, who's also the provider of the machinery that has taken a peek at that and making sure that all of the pieces are working as expected in their original condition. And um, there's a record of that. And we provide as I'm sure many other companies do provide a record of all of the service that was done, waveforms for the calibration. So there has to be ideally a third party involved for your calibration. You know, you try to avoid any sort of incestuous data by having your own calibration program. Those can be tricky at times. So I would, you know, recommend that you keep an eye on your PM, consider having duplicate equipments, equipment that's equivalent, that's on standby, ready to jump up. And then any last sort of bit of recommendation, Lisa, or observations from customers? You know, I just, our customers do the very best they can. And because metrology is not what they do, it's hard for them to understand. But I think for the most part, they're all doing such a good job and we're always here to help. And um, that's it. Yep. So, I mean, if you have uh, any questions for our stuff, you can always track Lisa down at Vanderstall. It was great spending some time with my wife in the studio here. Woohoo. Who was also the producer of this podcast. Never get her on the other side of the microphone here. So, I'm kind of shy. A little shy. If you knew Lisa, you would know that's not at all true, but <laughs> we'll just say that's true for now. Yeah, it's true <laughs> for when it comes to this sort of stuff. But in person, he always tells me when I go to the grocery store, listen, we don't have a lot of time. Do not make friends. We don't have time. And I'll go in there and I'll be crying and hugging somebody. Strangers. Like, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, we were at the restaurant the other day and on her walk to the bathroom, she met two people. <laughs> How do you do that? I love people. She does. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep a close eye on this woman. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I can't say enough great things about you. I just think you're just the world's best. So thank you so much for having me. You should marry me then. I think I already did. Oh, well, thank you for choosing me. What a great treat to hang out with my lovely wife today. Hey, thanks medical device manufacturers and medical device packaging professionals for joining us here for another episode of Sterile Packaging on Track Spot Radio. This is Charlie Webb. We'll see you next time. 
This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasper. Director of media service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.